This message by Sam Shin, entitled Proof of Birth, was recorded at Wellspring Church on January 19, 2020. The text for this message is 1 John chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. The scripture reading for this morning is found in 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 15. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of life, or passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not abide in death, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. This is the reading of God's Word. Please be seated. I believe everybody in here has a birth certificate. It is uh, really important when you're applying for a driver's license or a passport or, or trying to in some way prove that not only were you born, but that you were born of particular parents. And in the same way, there is a clear way that we know that we are children of God, that we are um, people who have been born anew. And John has gone through great lengths to show us exactly what it is that proves that we are born of God. In these verses, in verses 10 through 15, as well as next week, we'll learn a little bit more about what it means to be proven that we are children of God. In these verses, in particular, though, we learn of three proofs that show us that we are children of God. First, in verses 11 through 15, is that we love one another. Second, in verses 12 through 15, is that we are hated by the world. And then third, is in verse 14, that we pass from death to life. And so first we'll look at uh, what it means to love one another as our first proof of being a child of God. John tells us that essentially we can only love one another because we're children of God. That is to say that loving one another is much more than, say, being nice to one another or to spend time together, or eat meals together, or to help out one another, or to lend money, or forgive some wrongs. These are all notions of kindness, but they themselves, acts themselves, do not prove what it means to love one another. In fact, we'll learn, again, not just this week, but much more next week of how this plays out in our lives. But the one example that John gives to prove that we love one another is actually a negative example. It's the example of Cain. John tells us, according to verse 12, that loving one another does not look like this. We should not be like Cain. And to understand what John is referring to in that instance, we have to go back and look at the story of Cain and to examine who is Cain, what happened, and why that example is the one that John brings up in really comprehending what it means to love one another. 
Many of you know the story of Cain and Abel. Cain had a brother. His name was Abel. Both of them were the sons of Adam and Eve. And they both brought an offering before the Lord. They were in some way presenting themselves before God and saying, I worship you. I trust you, God. But the one thing we know about the story of Cain and Abel is that God accepted Abel's offering, but Cain's offering God did not accept. We learn in Genesis chapter 4, verses 5 through 7, the response in particular of Cain when Cain brought his offering to God. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And then he also says in verse 8, this is what happens next. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. The word killed in verse 8 is a very specific word that's used. It's not just murder. It's actually the word for cutting, slaughtering, butchering. And it's no accidental killing that we're talking about. Cain, in, in his rage, slaughters, butchers his brother. Remember, if you know the story of Cain and Abel, Abel is the one who is the sheep herder. He's the tender of sheep. Cain is the farmer. So in many ways, we know that one thing is for sure, when Abel brings his offering to God. The offering that he brings is the sacrifice of his first fruits, his animal. It's not just a fruit, but it's physically the best sheep. And it was the one that would have been the most valuable, the most precious. And that's what Abel brings to God. And God accepts that because he knows that's his heart. In some way, probably Cain, when he brought his vegetables, it wasn't his first fruit, but it was secondary or Tertiary. It wasn't something that was the best of his crops. But ironically, when Abel presents this offering that God accepts, Cain, in his anger, when he presents this mediocre offering to God, decides to outdo Abel's sheep by sacrificing his own brother. I mean, that's how horrific this was. So here's the question. How does Cain get to this place where he literally slaughters his own brother and presents his own brother before God? There's a, a progression of sins. If you look at the story, you'll see this progression that comes. In it, it begins with envy and jealousy. Or you might say a loss and pain. And I think all of us can in some way understand the beginnings of this type of progression of sin. It always starts there. It starts with covetousness, wanting something that you don't have, or maybe a loss that you've experienced, a hurt, a pain, a sorrow. That's the beginning point. And it always begins there, and it begs the question, what are you going to do with that? For Cain, the way that it progressed was his pride was hurt, and he felt frustrated by that because he deserved better. He was entitled to more. And then from there comes anger. Anger is really the result of a person who experienced pain or loss or envy as their pride is hurt and they feel enraged by it. 
They're frustrated. They're irritated by it. The next phase for Cain is self-pity. In fact, the Bible describes it as his face fell. And so he starts feeling sorry for himself. No one understands him. No, God doesn't understand what he's going through, what he had to go through to get these crops and to do the work of bringing it before him. And then from there comes bitterness. This sense of not only just anger, but it just doesn't go away. It starts cycling into his heart and he can't get rid of it. It just starts deepening into his soul where it ends up in the hardening of his heart towards God and towards others. This person is then unable to hear anything. They're not hearing God's word. They're not hearing from other people who are able to speak truth and care enough and maybe even loving enough to say, hey, you need to snap out of this. You need to change. You need to see the truth. They just can't hear that. Their heart has been hardened. And then eventually it leads to murder. Jewish commentaries describing Cain describes him this way. There is no judgment. There is no judge. There is no other world. There is no gift of good reward for the righteous, no punishment for the wicked. For Cain, everything is about himself. Nothing right is happening in his world. Jude 11 also describes Cain. And he describes Cain by describe, comparing the false teachers in the church to Cain. And he's, the Jude, uh, Judah's saying that these false teachers were completely so full of themselves and had no love for God or for others. In every way, Cain is not only the Bible's first recorded murder, murderer, he's, he's the archetype sinner. He is the prototype. He is the one that every future sinner would follow. In fact, what, when we read the story of Cain, we're, reading about our story of how we turn away from God. And if you examine your own heart, you can see that progression in your own soul as well. And so when John says, and why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. John is describing the essence of a heart that has completely separated himself from God. Exactly like the devil, as we learned last week. That's exactly what happens to us as well. So Cain is so full of himself that he can't see his deeds are evil. And much like the devil who only sees his deeds as righteous and God's deeds as, deeds as evil, so too Cain. Cain is exactly the same. He wants to usurp everything that God does. And that's what makes one so delusional. They cannot understand the difference between what is truly right and truly wrong. We only need to go back to the garden to understand where that comes from. There's a tree. The tree is the knowledge of good and evil. And there's a choice to be made. Either God is the determiner of what is good and evil or someone else is going to determine what is good and evil. That tree is so significant because it's all about who are you going to trust as to what is right and wrong, God or someone else, another person, myself, the culture, the world. That's the essence of where sin lies. Who determines what is right? Who determines what is wrong? The child of God, the follower of God says, I trust you, God, to determine what is right and wrong. And that we know by his word. 
His word was in the garden. And Adam and Eve decided, I'm not going to trust your word. I'm going to trust myself. And the devil's whole attack plan is to try to get Adam and Eve to buy in fully and to say, you don't have to believe in God's word. Just trust yourself. That's what matters most. You determine what is good and right. So if you look at Cain, that's just another step in that continuation story of sin. It's the idea that, okay, he's been hurt. He gets to determine for himself what is right and wrong apart from God. And that is going to lead to the action of, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. That's how it works. It works practically like that and even for ourselves. When we feel a lack of fairness, a lack of justice in our lives, you know, I get to determine what is good and evil, not God, not someone else. Any conflict, our first instinct is going to be the sense of injustice. How dare this person cut me off on the road? How dare this person speak to me this way? I have a right to feel this way. I have a right to feel, and you could fill in the blank, sad, lonely, angry, sorrowful. And that right is so strong for us, isn't it? it in that moment, we feel entitled to that. Whatever happens. And then from there, it's the hurt pride. How dare so-and-so tell me what I can and cannot do? If you ever feel that, know that it's coming from it's, it's really an internalized sense of, I determine what is right and wrong. And then from there, we see the hurt pride and then leading to anger. I will exact my vengeance. And the anger is expressed by our words, through hurtful words or curses, yelling, screaming, fighting, maybe saying nothing, silence, hiding, running, hurting. All of that is an expression of an anger from that hurt pride. And when that passes, self-pity comes in. No one understands me. Everyone's against me. No one understands all the pains and the sorrows that I've been through. And then victimization. And it's, you know, I have a right to feel this way because I've been hurt. And then bitterness. Forget everybody. I don't need anyone in my life. And then the hardened heart towards God. I'm just cutting you off. We cut God off. We cut other people off. We cut the church off. And it's just you by yourself. And then finally, murder. We might not physically murder people, though we might. But we're so miserable. Or we, we really vilify people in our hearts. You can see how the path of Cain is ultimately the refusal to trust in the path of God, to trust God. It's, it's a path that now we understand why John writes that if you have this heart, it's hard to love somebody, isn't it? I mean, it makes sense that once you go down this road of Cain, well, loving one another is completely impossible. You just can't do it. And it all starts from some hurt, some sorrow, some pain. Again, we think that we're so compartmentalized that we can feel anger or frustration towards one person, and then against another person, we don't feel it. But the hardening of the heart 
impacts all relationships. So you go down this road and you really will find that it will be incredibly difficult to sustain a heart that is softened and loving towards others when we've already closed a door in our hearts towards God. That's difficult, impossible to do. Loving one another then is remembering your identity. It means you were loved while you were still a sinner. Romans 6.23 You were not loved when you were nice and kind and generous towards God. You were loved while you rebelled against God, while you had no love for him. And you didn't deserve love. You only deserve God's judgment. We were all left abandoned because of our own sinfulness and without hope. But the father picks you up. He brings you into his home. He cleanses you. He purchases you. He purchases you through his son's perfect righteous blood, and then he gives you this wonderful royal position of son and daughter. And it's in that position, therefore, that you love another person, that you do not love like Cain, where it's conditional and based solely on whether someone hurts you or not, whether someone's good to you or not. To always be willing to submit and yield to the father because he's done everything for you, and loved you, that's when you decide, I will not give up on another person. I will not run away. I will not just simply turn my back. So the first proof of our sonship and daughtership is that we love one another, not like Cain. Again, we'll learn next week about more about what it means to love one another in other ways. But the first thing is we make sure we guard our hearts against that heart of Cain. Second is that we're hated by the world. That's another proof that you are a child of God. If you want to know that you really are in Christ, it's that you will be hated. We can't just push by verse 13 without really, really contemplating what this means. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Why are we surprised? Because... We believe we deserve better. We don't like to be hated. I mean, who does like to be hated? But again, the story of Cain in verse 13 explains how this happens. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. The one thing about the Cain and Abel story is that you actually never hear a word from Abel. You know why you never hear from Abel? Because all we know and all the Genesis writer Moses wants us to know about Abel is that his deeds were righteous. He just followed and trusted God. That was his life. That's all he did, actually. It's not as though he tried to upend Cain and tried to. They were not two brothers fighting equally against one another. It wasn't as though Abel made Cain so irritated that Abel did so many evil things against Cain that Cain righteously sought revenge against his brother. That's not what happened. What we know is that Abel was a righteous person who worshipped God. That's all he did. And my friends, that's what it means to be a child of God according not only to John but to Jesus that When you are worshiping God, trusting in him, following him, 
you will be hated just for that fact alone. We're not talking about doing bad things or evil things. Just for worshiping God, you will be hated. John isn't the only one who says that. Jesus is the one who said that. John's just repeating what Jesus said. We read in John 15, 18 through 19. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Doesn't this just go against everything we feel internally? No one likes to be hated. We, like, we love being liked, actually. We want people to respect us. We want people to tell us how good we are, how smart we are, how beautiful we are. We want people to notice us. But Jesus is saying to be a follower of Jesus, to be a child of God, means that you're going to be hated by the world. Why would anyone sign up for that? Because here's the reason why we choose to be hated by the world. Because in this world, being liked does not last. It eventually fades. I'm going to give you a prime example of this, the story of Eric Little. His life was depicted in the movie Chariots of Fire. He was a, the British 400-meter gold medalist in the 1924 Paris Olympics. But if you know the story, you know that he was never intended to run the 400 meters. He was supposed to run the 100 meters. That's what he trained for. That's what he was known to run the fastest. But when he got to those Olympics, he found out that the final heat, the actual medal, gold medal race was to be run on Sunday. And as a Christian, at that moment, whether you believe in being a Sabbatarian or not, in his own conscience, he felt he could not run on that Sunday. So he decided to forego that race. Yeah, to understand, he was, the 100 meters in track and field is sort of the, the king of all races. And he was upheld by the British press as a, a hero. But when he decided not to run, he was vilified in the press. He was made to be the worst of the worst. The, the press called him a traitor to his own country. One of his Olympic roommates said Eric Little was the most unpopular man in Britain when he decided not to run. But despite that, he decided to run the 400 meters. And amazingly, he won without training at all for that race. So he won the gold medal. And right after that, the press, they just started adoring him. They were, they saw him as this incredible man, this hero who overcame all odds and Decided to be, you know, just really went along with his conscience. They admired him until the next Olympics came along. And in those next Olympics, he was clearly the odds-on winner to win the 400-meter gold medal. But he decided not to run because he decided to give his life by going as a missionary to China. And when he decided to do that, and he had received sponsorship offers fame, the love of his country, when he decided to turn it down, because he said, because I believe God made me for China, once again, he was vilified in the press. I, that's what it means to follow Christ in the world. When you follow God above everything else, you can be loved and hated in the blink of an eye. But it's not just following God. That's the world we live in. 
That's why following the world and wanting to be liked by people, it just doesn't last. It never does. Being popular when you're in high school, and some of us who are now in our fifth decade of life, maybe longer, does it really matter whether you were a cheerleader or you know, the captain of the football team? And if you're still living in that glory as a 50, 60, 70-year-old, there's something wrong with you. But in that moment, that means everything, right? But the longevity of time and life gives you that perspective of living for to be liked is not worth it. But living to be loved eternally is absolutely worth it. And that's what we have when we are in Christ is that you are not liked. You are loved, not just for a moment, not for your high school years, not for when you're in college or when you're 40, but eternally, forever and ever, you are loved. That will never change. And so that's why when Jesus is saying, get ready to be hated as a Christian, he's not saying it because he wants you to be hated because he thinks being hated is a great thing. He's saying that being hated in the moment is not so bad when you are loved eternally. Being loved by a father who will never forget you, who will never leave you, is worth it if that love never fades. And that's what will last. Um, Pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones, he has a lot of keen insights on this. He notes that we're not hated because we are good. Now, that's the thing is the world actually likes good people. It hates Christians not because they are good. It hates them because they worship Christ. Good people who don't talk about Jesus are really okay in this world. They don't divide anybody. But Christians divide not because they do evil things, but because they believe Jesus is Savior. And all we need to see to look at that is to look at Jesus himself. People like Jesus as a moral teacher. Actually, our world likes Jesus as a moral teacher. They don't mind Jesus as someone who gave the parable of the Good Samaritan. They love the parable of the Good Samaritan. But what they hate is when Jesus talks about, well, anyone who wants to save his life will, must lose it because you have to, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. They hate that. The world wants Jesus as a really good moral teacher, but they hate Jesus as the savior of the world. And the fact of the matter is, is that Jesus doesn't allow you to just simply see him as a moral teacher. He says you have to see him as the way, the truth, and the life. And once that happens, then Jesus is hated. And if you are a follower of Christ and actually believe Jesus fully, then you'll be hated too. He doesn't just come to give nice teachings, give some fables. He's not Aesop. He is the person who is the savior of the world. And so when he says, I've come to save the world, the world hates that, despises it. And actually, it brings division. He brings division. Listen to what he says in Matthew 10. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword, for I've come to set a man against his father, 
and a daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. If you have ever experienced this, you know this to be true. If you have not, then it could happen. Good people do not divide families. They don't. I mean, if kids always obey parents and do what they want, if they uh, if you do well in school and get a good job and have a nice moral family, that doesn't divide a family. Your family won't hate you. if Even if you do something wrong, actually, a lot of families welcome in prodigals. They're, they're willing to accept mistakes and to forgive, to welcome people when they fail. But try to live your life for Jesus fully. And Jesus is saying that even your family will hate you. The fact is, even we have a hard time with believers who follow Christ. Christians have a hard time with Christians who follow Jesus. Let me give you an example of that. Go out and do something. Watch a movie. Go play golf. Hang out with a bunch of friends at a, a party. And then... In the middle of that, start sharing your quiet time. Talk about Jesus. Talk about what God is teaching you. And if you sense, even amongst fellow Christians, this sense of, why are you bringing Jesus up? We're having a great round of golf and suddenly talking about Jesus. You can sense that. You can sense that from fellow Christians. That somehow talking about Jesus, theology, how he's changing you, how he's impacting you, Bible verses that you're memorizing, that somehow that's inconvenient. It's just awkward. Why are you talking about Jesus like that? And I'm saying this amongst Christians. If we cannot talk about our faith, how we're growing, what we're learning, our questions, in any context, as a Christian, with fellow Christians then I say you are going to be hated for talking about Christ, even amongst Christians. Now, if you're hated amongst Christians, how much more amongst non-Christians? This is why it is so hard to follow Christ, but it is the proof of us being a Christian. This is the conundrum. We think if we're just kind to people and nice to people, that people will see Jesus and worship him. That's just not going to happen. Nice people do not show people that they need Christ. Actually, until we tell people the reason why we're nice, only then will people finally see that we are in Christ and why Christ is worth following. Now, many might turn against you, but you might be surprised. There might be that one person who says, I've been waiting for someone to tell me. Actually, when you read the New Testament and you hear the many times Paul and Peter and John, they're proclaiming Christ and preaching the gospel. They are beaten. They are thrown out. And many turn away. But then the Bible also says that there are some who actually say, I want to hear more. Have you ever been in a situation where you've been mocked You've been thrown out. But then someone says, hey, I've been waiting for you. If you haven't, maybe it's because we've never shown that 
the reason why we follow Christ. Not just that it makes us into a nice person, but actually it's because he's my savior. He's my Lord. He's my king. That's what it means to be a child of God, is someone who is hated because they believe in Jesus. Thirdly is that passed from death to life in verse 14. This is our proof. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. The reason why this is a proof is because we really have passed from death to life. This is not just something abstract and theoretical or fantastical. It's historical truth for us. We believe that this world and all of its treasures and all of its validations do not define us. This is not why we are special, why things matter for us. The money that I have in my pockets, that's meant to be used as a blessing for other people, not simply for the enjoyment of my own self and my family. It's meant so that I can show people the love of Christ. The world's treasures do not show who I am. I use this question quite often. It helps me personally to really define, do I live as someone who thinks that this world is everything or is it but a fleeting moment? And it's the question of a thousand years from today, does blank matter to me as much as it does right now? You have to really ponder that for a moment. Whatever you think is so important, ask yourself, a thousand years from today, does it matter? And if you can't really say, yes, it matters, then maybe you're placing way too much hope, too much thought, too much angst into that. Tim Keller talks about the fact that on the last day that you're about to live your life, you will not say, I wish I worked harder. You will not. But sadly, too many of us are still thinking, I need to work harder to get here. Again, it's not to be about not being faithful to the task at hand. But do not define yourself by what you think is most important right now. It won't matter that much. In fact, James says this in James 4, 14, 15. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. What is your life? It is but a vanishing mist. If you are a child of God, you can surrender your future. Because you know your future is secure. As Paul says in Romans 8.31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If nothing can separate you from his love, you can surrender your future. And with that, we're so assured that everything we have in this world is what Paul says are treasures in jars of clay that can be broken into smithereens in a moment. And you know what? It doesn't matter. We have Christ. Jesus reconciled us to the Father and brought us home. That's So everything else is grace upon grace. It's not to say we can't enjoy this world. But we always have at the back of our mind, if I lose this, I'm okay. If I lose my health, I'm okay. If I lose my treasures, I'm okay. If I lose that relationship, I'm okay. I will not be destroyed. 
Because I have Christ. That's why that in Hebrews 11, it ends, that grand chapter of faith. It's a, it's a really hard chapter to read at the end because it talks about people who have been sawn in two, who have lost everything. Like it's, it's a really difficult, and because you can't imagine being in that context. And the Hebrews writer says the world was not worthy of them because they had been killed and tortured for knowing Christ. And yet it was worth it. It was worth it for them because they understood life is a vanishing mist. From this heart and perspective, then, we love the brothers. We love with Christ's love because he loved us first. And we know that like Abel, who was cut and slaughtered and butchered by an evil man for loving God, because he followed God with all of his heart, that's why that was his end life, his result. We know that we have seen this as well through Jesus. Jesus was cut and slaughtered and butchered by an evil humanity, by us. Why? Because Jesus loved God and followed him with all of his heart. But Jesus, unlike Abel, was not murdered behind his back. Abel was murdered by his brother behind his back. Jesus willingly went to be murdered by now brothers and sisters. You and I were part of his murder. Our sins placed him on that cross. But he didn't go, he wasn't surprised by it. He knew it was coming. And despite knowing it was coming, he did it. For me and for you. John 5.24 says, Truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him, who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. God sent his son to a world that, John says, rejected him. And John 1.11 says, they did not receive him. The world did not receive him. But I love John 1.12, the very next verse. But to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This is the proof that we need. He gives us the right to be his children because he has done all the work for us. So I, I hope today, moving forward, may you be defined not by what you do in this world, by what instead by what Christ has done for you. Let's pray together. Father, we know that you have done all things for our good, for your glory and purposes. There was a cost that was to be paid so that we would be able to come to you to recognize that you are King and Lord. Jesus, we have so much to be thankful for. But most of all, we have the fact that you reconciled us to the Father so that we could be brought home and welcomed home. And we have this proof that assures us that we are your children. I pray, O oh Lord, that the seed that has been planted, that we have been born again, that we wouldn't just sit on it, but instead that we would cultivate it by your Spirit to be able to be lived out and to remind ourselves our hearts that are very much like Cain's, 
we would not allow envy and covetousness, hurt and sorrows and pain to control us, to envelop us and to define who we are, but instead to realize that we have Christ and in Christ we have everything. So as we eat this bread and drink this wine, help us, O Lord, to use this as a true reminder, as a means of grace to show us once again that we are your children, bought with a price. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.